As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 425. I'm anti no unless and pro yes if. So people often say no to something and you need to do this. Otherwise, I'm going to say no. The problem with that is it doesn't say what will happen if the other side does do it and they don't know that they will succeed. Negotiation is stressful. It can bring out the worst in people. Wouldn't it be better if there were a principled way to negotiate? Even better, a way to treat people fairly and get treated fairly in return? Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then reading must be a part of that plan. Reading consistently and intentionally. And the Read to Lead podcast is going to help you narrow this reading list and bring you the key insights and main ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. We talk to these authors each week about their latest book and their unique insights on personal and professional development, leadership, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, entrepreneurship, and more. In just a few minutes, we're going to be sitting down with Barry Nailbuff. He's author of Split the Pie, a radical new way to negotiate a book I thoroughly enjoyed. I'll be asking Barry about his experience starting a company with a former student and selling and negotiating with Coca-Cola to do so, how to negotiate when the other side isn't interested in fairness, better ways to negotiate your salary and other benefits at work, and much more. Throughout the month of June and into July, I am hosting 16 founding members of my first ever note-taking mastery cohort, and I could not be more excited. Sound like something that's up here, Ali? Well, you've missed the chance for this first one. But if you'd like to be notified the next time registration opens for our next cohort, which will likely be in the fall, you can go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list to get on the waiting list. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash list to get your name on that waiting list. It's a five-week cohort. We have weekly meetings for five consecutive weeks. You learn techniques for better capturing, organizing, distilling, and expressing your daily notes. Gone are the days where you take notes on the books you read, the podcasts you listen to, or the videos you watch that you never, ever refer back to again. And how to make all those notes you do capture talk to one another, like notes from today, mingling with notes from six months ago. Yeah, it's possible. And you can learn the techniques I use to take actual useful notes. 
In this note-taking mastery cohort, you'll learn to build your own personal knowledge management system. You'll have access to the note-taking mastery members-only community and ongoing access to all session recordings to review or to watch for the first time if you happen to miss a particular week. We've got your back. Again, our first ever cohort is full, but if you want to be notified the next time I offer this note-taking mastery cohort, again, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list to put your name on the waiting list right now. One more time, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. Barry Nailbuff is the Milton Steinbach professor at the Yale School of Management, where he has taught for over 30 years. An expert on game theory, he has written extensively on his application to business strategy. He's advised the NBA in their negotiations with the Players Association and several firms in major mergers and acquisitions transactions. He is the author of seven books, and his latest is called Split the Pie, a radical new way to negotiate. Well, Barry, it is a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to appear on the Read to Lead podcast. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to have the chance to be with you. Well, negotiation uh, and books about this topic, I have to admit, are, are books that I don't normally gravitate to. But I am so glad that I picked up your book. And as I was reading it early on, I thought to myself, how fun it must be to be in your shoes, to be teaching this to college students and see all these light bulbs go off when you're teaching these concepts over the years. Tell me a little bit about your experience there specifically teaching this to college students. What's remarkable is I love my students. Mm. They are smart. They are empathetic. They are curious until they start negotiating. <laughs> <laughs> at which point they start acting like jerks oh. <laughs> and they think that they need to behave that way so as to protect themselves so they don't get taken advantage of by others who also, by the way, are smart, curious, empathetic, acting like jerks. <laughs> and they are so happy to discover there's another approach that allows them to use their skills and be much more effective as a way of negotiating. And I want to dig into some of that in just a moment. Before we do, I want to ask about your experience with one of your former students and the two of you starting a company together that you would then later sell to Coca-Cola. Talk about that. I had the great privilege of seeing wonderful students. I get to know who are the stars, the superstars. And I kind of say, yep, if I have an opportunity to do something with that person later, uh, Absolutely. And when Seth Goldman came to me a few years after you graduated and said, remember that discussion we had had about making less sweet drinks? Has anything ever happened to that? And I said, no, but I'm ready. I've got the idea. Let's create a less sweet version of Snapple, a, a tea that tastes like tea. Uh, let's call it honest tea. And he said, he's in. <laughs> and so we started this company to kind of simple idea, fire, water, tea leaves. <laughs> uh, put uh, good tea in a bottle. And mm. that became Honest Tea, which grew organically from nothing to now several hundred million dollars in sales. Mm. And uh, it was a wild ride. It was uh, taking ideas from the classroom and putting them into practice. And lo, lo and behold, they worked. Yeah, I can imagine the advantage you had and your former student uh, had negotiating a deal with, with the likes of, of Coca-Cola. What was that like? It was an advantage and a disadvantage. Mm. Uh, it was a disadvantage because I cared way too much. <laughs> this, 
this was a, a you know a life changing result uh, for both of us. And if it didn't go well, it really wouldn't have gone well. I mean, there would have been. Uh, and in fact, we had had a previous negotiation with Nestle that didn't turn out so well, at which point the other side said, you know, that I had ruined Seth's future, his children's mm. future, the generations. And fortunately, he recognized that it wasn't really our side that was the problem on this. Mm. What had happened was we had a, a, a remarkable challenge with Coke, mm. which is they understood what we could bring to the table, that we had a product that was healthy, that was organic, that wasn't competing with their brands out there. Mm. But we were also too small. We were 20 million in sales and a company that size can get lost in their system. So we all agreed that it made sense for them to buy us in three years. Okay. Now, during those three years, they'd help us with production, with distribution, with marketing, purchasing. But then there was a problem, which was if they were going to be helping us, they didn't want to pay for all the stuff they did to help us. Right. <laughs> that, you know, it's like, that doesn't seem right. It's sort of, uh, and I had to agree with that. Mm. And so the question is, how could we work out a situation whereby they helped us but weren't penalized for their, for their helping us? Mm. And it turns out this is exactly what I was teaching in the classroom. And so it was the first time that this theory of the pie got brought into use. And what I said is, you should pay full price on what we could do without you. And to the extent that we achieve more than that, you should pay half price. That essentially you should get half of the gains that are created and we should get half of the gains that are created because it's true we couldn't do it without you, but you couldn't do it without us being the party to help. And so we said, essentially, you should pay full price on sales up to X and half price on sales that we achieve above X. Mm. Now, what X is, nobody knows, <laughs> but we had some discussions about that. That was a little more contentious mm -hmm. in the sense of, okay, what are our new products that were coming out? How fast have we been growing? What are our new markets? Nonetheless, it turned the negotiation from a contentious discussion to a data exercise. Mm. And essentially, what we agreed up front in the first hour was our goal is to create a giant pie and split it. Right. And then having done that, we could now focus on how do we make the pie bigger? Mm. And if you ask the folks at Coke what they thought about negotiating with me, their answer was, I wish all entrepreneurs were like that. <laughs> because in the end, we knew we were going to do a deal and we made the deal as big as possible. And win-win for everybody. Yeah, for sure. It's not just a just a slogan. It actually it was the case in, in this mm -hmm. scenario. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me get to the book specifically. How do you hope that this book ultimately, Barry, changes the way we negotiate both for our side and for the other side? I think the sad fact is, people are terrible at negotiation mm. and half the people are bad at it because they fear it and they think they have to act like jerks. The other half are the jerks who act like sharks and spend their time taking advantage of the other side and in the end destroy the pie that they're hoping to get a large slice of. Mm. And the question is, how is it that we can be open with the other side and not be taken advantage of? Right. My, my answer to that is to resolve the contentious part up front, to agree that what we're going to do is create a large pie and split it. Once we've agreed to that, now we're done with the hard part. Mm. So now we're on the same team. That might be a little too aggressive to start that way. So you could have mm. some humor. You can say, what do you say we act like jerks, make ultimatums to each other, threats, <laughs> lies, and so on? You want to do that? And the other side says, no, I'm, I'm not so keen. I say, good, because I have a better idea. And the larger point here is that people start their negotiations way too quickly by talking about price. Like, mm. 
No, let's actually talk about how we're going to negotiate. And that's the interesting discussion as I think the way to begin a negotiation. One of the things I love about the book is the super simple examples that you share that are easy to follow along and easy to see how to put this into practice. There's the early example of the two investors. One has 5,000 to invest, one has 20. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's your example, though you don't reveal it. Uh, I I hope I'm not giving too much away. You don't reveal it to you (laughs) at first, but uh, attempting to to buy the domain, the, the troll that grabs the day that you trademark a phrase. Uh, and they're just they're just r- really simple and easy to get. So I encourage anyone who struggles with this area in their business to to definitely pick up this book for that reason and many others. Um, uh, one of the things that has always been a struggle for me to discern, Barry, is knowing what issues are the right issues to include in a negotiation in the first place. How do you best go about, or how do we best go about determining that? Let's start with the fact is you can't know them. Uh, mm. And negotiation is a two-person activity or a multi-person activity. And so the idea of here are the things that are important to me. No, it's what is important to us. And so therefore, you have to ask questions and you have to answer questions. People often think a negotiation is like having a Miranda right read to you. Anything you say can and will be used against <laughs> you. So therefore, they, they don't open up. Mm. Other people think, oh, I have to answer questions. Because if I don't answer their questions, they won't answer mine. All right. Okay. There's something else that's going on here, which is I need to understand what's important to you and you need to understand what's important to me. And unless we're out there sharing with each other, being curious, exploring, we'll never figure out what the right issues are. Mm. And so I'd say the answer is don't presume you know what the important issues are. <laughs> uh, have the conversation and talk about it. Say, look, I need to understand What's important to you? What are you hoping to achieve? So in the case of Coca-Cola, when they came to buy Honest Tea, they asked, what do you want to accomplish with this deal? Do you want to keep on working in the company uh, or is it your hope to just uh, say goodbye and let us take it over? Mm. And Seth said, uh, I think we're this. the company's still a teenager uh, and it needs more guidance. And so mm. I want to keep leading it for the next five years at least. Uh, and I said, look, I, my day job is being a professor. Mm. And I'm happy to go back and being a professor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And the good news is that's what they wanted from both of us, that they wanted more of Seth. They didn't need a chairman uh, yeah. because they have governance there. So mm. uh, it turns out our interests were aligned. But we didn't know what they wanted. They may have had somebody else in mind to replace Seth. That's not what they wanted. Mm. And it's a good example uh, that you talk about in your book, or the power in negotiation is not related to size, right? One of the huge lessons that we take from this book is people who have been historically disadvantaged, people who are smaller size in terms of revenue, uh, in terms of experience, when you correctly measure what a negotiation is about, they are equally essential. Mm. So perhaps we can go back to that example you mentioned of the 5,000 and the 20,000, if that's... Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have a negotiation between Anju and Bharat, and Anju has 5,000 to invest, and Bharat has 20,000 to invest. Anju, with her 5,000, can only earn 1%, which is $50. And Bharat, with his 20,000, can earn 2%, which is $400. But if they combine their resources, they can invest 25,000 and earn 3%, which is 750. Most people incorrectly believe that the negotiation is about that 750. Mm-hmm. If they can't figure out how to divide that 750, they can't do that 
combined deal. So that's their their challenge. Now, what do they think? Well, they say, well, if it's about the 750, Barad is putting in four times as much money, 20,000 compared to 5,000. So Barad should get four times as much. That means a 600 to 150 division. Mm-hmm. People are always looking for proportional divisions. They think proportional is, is somehow fair. Right. Other people think, well, take that 750, just divide it in two, 375, 375. That's not going to work because Barat can get 400 on his own. Mm. My point and the big point of the book is the negotiation is not about the 750. It's about 300. 300 is the additional amount that two parties get by having an agreement. They can get 50 plus 400 or 450 on their own. Mm. They get 750 by coming together. That additional 300 is the reason to have the negotiation. And that's what they divide evenly. That's what they divide evenly. And that's also where they have equal power. So mm-hmm. Anju is bringing less to the table, 5,000 if you'd like, but Barat can't get that extra 300 without Anju's help. Mm-hmm. And so therefore Anju is equally valuable, equally essential, has equal power to Barat when you correctly understand the negotiation is about the 300. Mm-hmm. Mind blown. <laughs> it's, it's simple, but it was like, oh, wow, that makes so much sense. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, Professor, what are some maybe often used phrases in negotiation that we actually should try to avoid? I mean, you may have mentioned some of them already, but what, what, what are some that we, we often use that we shouldn't use at all? I'm anti no unless mm. and pro yes if. Mm, okay. So people often say no to something and you need to do this. Otherwise, I'm going to say no. The problem with that is it doesn't say what will happen if the other side does do it, and they don't know that they will succeed. Mm. So oftentimes, people, you're asking somebody to go out on a limb for you, to make an exception, to do something special. What they want to know is if they make that happen, they're going to succeed. So Mm. in particular, you say, well, look, I need this much equity. I need this much salary. I need this much bonus. They come up with it and they say, oh, and by the way, I've got this other thing I also want. (laughs) Or that's great because you now help me get a higher salary at my existing company. And then they've lost all their credibility with their superior. Right. Uh, Or they've they've paid all this cost internally because they made this special deal for you and they don't get anything in return. Mm. So they want to know that if they make those extra steps, they will succeed. And that's why you say, yes, if. Mm, I love that. Well, one thing that often comes up is dealing with someone on the other side who isn't interested in fairness. How do you how do you negotiate with someone who isn't willing to see what's fair? My lesson here is to explain to the other person about the pie, why what you think is fair, and then hold to it. So I don't care if they don't care about fairness, <laughs> long as they see that I care about fairness, mm. and if they want to do a deal with me. They have to come up with a fair answer Mm. because my point is that principled arguments beat arbitrary arguments. And the example we talk about in the book is the negotiation over a domain name. And essentially in this case, there's a troll who's taken the domain name and he doesn't care about fairness. He doesn't care about the pie. Uh, He just wants to get as much money as possible. But as it turns out, for $1,300, ICANN will restore the domain name to the rightful owner, namely me. Mm. And he first asked for $2,500. And I point out, well, $2,500, that's ridiculous because I could pay ICANN $1,300. So he says, okay, $1,100. And now my point is, well, that's actually not fair 
because $1,100 puts you $1,100 ahead because you don't have any other value for this. Mm. It only puts me $200 ahead because my comparison is paying you versus paying ICANN. Mm. And $1,100 is $200 better. Now, here's you ask me what are things you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. I don't want to fight fire with fire. So in particular, I could come back and say, oh, you're you're asking for $1,100. I'm going to offer you $200. That's just a flip, right? Because right. offering him $200 is as bad for him as his $1,100 offer is to me. Right. So instead of just fighting fire with fire, I want to put out the fire. I say, you know, I'm not going to offer you $200 because I think if I did that, you'd reject it and see it's totally unfair. Mm. And for the same reason why you would reject a $200 offer, I'm going to reject your $1,100 offer, because it's not fair. I mm. wouldn't expect you to do this, and for the same reason, you shouldn't expect me to. Mm. We have $1,300 here to split, and I'm prepared to give you $650. That'll leave me $650 ahead and leave you $650 ahead. Mm. If you can give me a reason why you should do something else, I'm prepared to do that. But no, absent that reason, I'm going to stick to the fair solution. Mm. He then tries the old, let's split the difference approach. You're mm. at $650, I'm at $1,100. What about $900? <laughs> and my view is if I move away from 650, I'm giving up on my principal. And now I'm playing his game. Right. So my response is I do nothing. I don't even respond to his email. And a week later, he comes back and says 650. <laughs> now, he doesn't care about fairness. He doesn't care about the pie. But he realizes that I've made an argument that has principles. And he's out there just trying throwing spaghetti on the wall. 2,500, 1,100, 900. Right. So therefore, he's going to move because he's arbitrary and I'm not. And you're not. Yeah. Very well laid out. I love how you laid You explained it so well. So thank you for taking the time to do that. I appreciate that. Do you know the old experiment about the Xerox machines and making copies? So this is from 1975. It's okay. uh, Ellen Langer, the first woman tenured in psychology department at Harvard. She has graduate students to go to a Xerox machine and interrupt the person and try and jump the queue. And one view is they, they said, I'd like to make five copies. Another is, I'd like to make five copies because I want to make copies. Another is, I want to make five copies because I'm in a rush. Uh, now, in those days, by the way, Xerox machines taking five copies actually took some time, just to be clear. <laughs> um, and just asking, it turned out 60% of people said fine. Asking because I want to make copies, which is a ridiculous answer, because what else you can do with a Xerox machine, <laughs> went to 94%. And because mm. I'm in a rush, went to 94%. percent mm. People took away from that the view that giving a reason makes you more successful when you ask. But there was another part of her experiment where she said, I want to make 20 copies. At that point, when they gave a bogus reason, like I want to make copies because I want to make copies, it no longer worked. Uh. But when they said, because my boss is in a hurry, then it actually was successful. And so my view is that if you're going to, I don't want you to negotiate by begging. I want you to negotiate by making a principled argument. And that's what I believe is going to lead you to be successful. Now, now we, we throw a wrench in the wheel when we start thinking about more than two parties involved in a negotiation. How does that impact some of these techniques that we, we've talked about thus far? It absolutely makes it much harder. Mm. So in the case with Anju and Bharat, one reason why people may think that Anju has less power is that a person who has $5,000 to invest is more easily replaced. And so if Bharat can negotiate with Chirag rather than Anju and find somebody else who has 5000 now we have to ask, how much more value does Anju create than Chirag? Mm. And in general, I think negotiations always come down to a two-party in the following way, that there's some pair that's a better pairing than anybody else. 
and that extra value that the two parties create by coming together, that's the pie. So in particular, uh, imagine that Honest Tea could do a deal with Pepsi. Coca-Cola could do a deal with Long Life. Mm. The question is, why is it that Honest is a better partner for Coke? And why is it that Coke is a better partner for Honest? Mm. That extra value the two of us create, that's ultimately what we're really negotiating over. Mm. What about work? If we want to negotiate something more than our place in line at the Xerox machine, let's say Mm -hmm. we want to better negotiate our salary or maybe even other benefits at work, what might be some tips you could give us there? Let's start with one is we want to understand what the other side is thinking. In life, I say I want to give the other side what it is they want, because if they get what they want, I can get what I want. Mm. Similarly, I don't want to take from them what it is they don't want to give. Right. So how do I learn about them in a way that's non-threatening? One good question I think to ask is, help me understand where you are least flexible. So there's salary, there's bonuses, there's equity. And if they tell me that salary is where they're least flexible, then don't ask for salary. (laughs) Because now I can say, okay, let's talk about bonus. Let's talk about uh, equity. Because you've now told me you're going to be more flexible on that than something else. Mm. Let's also understand what's really important. What's the most valuable thing I can get in a job? One, having a great mentor. Two, having the right experiences that I need to get to the next level. So maybe what I need to do is being in a position where I'm managing other people. So I may have the technical expertise, but I don't have the experience leading. And if you're going to put me in a really senior position, you're going to want to know that I can manage large teams. So I can say, separate from salary, how can I get, what are the holes in my career? What's stopping me from being advanced? And how can I get those experiences? So let's add dimensions uh, to the negotiation. Well, we talked a little bit about power mm-hmm. uh, previously and, and how it doesn't have to depend upon size, but what about negotiating when the other side knows more than you do? You, you feel at a disadvantage that way. So one of the things I do is just ask them for their help. <laughs> uh, I was recently negotiating, helping the city of New Haven negotiate a new airport terminal with a fancy investment bank. Mm. And the thing is, I had never negotiated an airport contract before. <laughs> it's just not my area. Mm-hmm. These folks help finance airports all around the country. So they know a whole lot more about this than I do. Mm. I'm never going to become the expert. So what I say to them is, please help me by showing me your spreadsheet. I want to understand your financial calculations here. It's like, well, that's, you know, that's our spreadsheet. That's confidential. Mm. Like, well, I've got a problem, which is I need to recommend this deal to the mayor. And the thing is, What I'm worried about is this is going to turn out to be something where it's an egregious return that you're making, 90%. And I want you to make money because if you're not making money, you're not going to want to do this deal. Mm. So yeah, a 20% rate of return is great. But essentially, I need to be able to say in good faith that this is an appropriate rate of return that you're going to earn. Mm. And so give me that confidence and then I'm happy to make this happen. And so they actually, they share the spreadsheet with me. We talk about it. I actually understand the economics a whole lot better. And now I have the confidence to go and recommend this deal. Mm. In a more practical, uh, more common situation, you know, I think it's fine for you to say to the employer, you know, I'm expecting to be paid market wage. Help me understand that. What are you targeting the 50th percentile? Are you targeting the 75th percentile? Mm. Where are you getting your data? One person I advised recently had done a lot of homework about what the salaries were in her market for the particular job. 
Mm. But what she didn't get was what the salaries were the same company was paying for that same role in other cities. Mm. And, you know, like that would be great information to either learn on your own or get ahead of time. Right. Well, that lends me to one more question about the book before I move on to some other questions, or actually two more questions about the book. Sure. One is, and there's some of this hidden in the example you just gave, but how do we know in a negotiation from our vantage point what to reveal mm-hmm. and what maybe ethically we're able to keep hidden? <laughs> Remember my comment earlier about the Miranda warning. Mm-hmm. I think people go way on the wrong side of keeping too much hidden. Mm. So first off, I want to reveal up front that I want to work for you. I don't want to be coy about that. Uh, I don't want to say, look, I actually don't really like you, but if you pay me so much more money than other people, <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll work there. <laughs> right, right. Uh, as opposed to you think, oh, if I say how much I like them, then they're going to screw me on the salary. No, I don't think that's uh, – I think they want to hire people who want to work there. The next thing is I want to reveal information to help them appreciate why this is going to be a large pie. So in particular – I tell the story of somebody selling a gas station and their goal in life is to take a sailboat trip around the world. Now, the person buying the gas station says, well, why are you selling? And they don't want to reveal. They say, oh, because we're retiring. Now, there are good and bad reasons to sell a gas station. A bad reason is there's a leak in the oil tank and this is about to become a Superfund site. (laughs) Right? Right. And that's what the buyer is worried about. So the fact that I want to take a trip around the world is a good reason, not a bad reason. Mm. Once, if I tell them the truth and then they're smart and they say, my goal is to get you on that boat because look, if I can help you take that trip, then you're on the boat and I get to buy the station. They say, well, look, you're taking the trip. You're young. Yeah, we want to take this trip while we're still young. Are you planning to retire? No, actually. When we come back, we're going to need a job. Wow, you're great managers. Would you like a job at the station? And like, Mm. well, maybe it's not what I want to do forever, but hey, now I don't have to worry about being unemployed when I come back. So you've just made it easier for me to do what I want. Right. If the person says the white lie, I'm retiring, the other person isn't going to say, would you like a job? (laughs) Right. So you've denied people the ability to learn about the other side and give them what they want because you're not being open. Mm. So let me give you a quick quiz. I'm going to flip the uh, script if you like. Uh Uh-oh. A and B have a negotiation that must end by Friday at 5. Mm. By Friday at 5, no deal, they're done. But A has a deadline of Wednesday at 5, and B does not know it. Mm. Should A reveal this potentially damaging information to B? I would say yes. My gut says yes. Without revealing it, Wednesday comes and goes. The result doesn't matter at that point because it's going to be too late. Absolutely. So your gut is a great gut. I want. <laughs> I wish everybody had your gut. Uh, <laughs> People think, oh, it's a it's a weakness. It's something bad about me. Mm. But if you don't say anything, Wednesday at 4, you're going to become desperate. And wow. here's the point. Your deadline of Wednesday at 5 is B's deadline. They just don't know it. Right, right. And so you start off by saying, you know, look, I've got some bad news for you. We don't really have till Friday at 5. We only have to Wednesday at 5, so let's get cracking. And again, it's sort of people hide information because that's their knee-jerk reaction. But I think that's typically not going to be the right strategy. Wow. A professor just gave me a surprise quiz and I aced it. Awesome. You did indeed. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so relieved. We should end right there, right? Just yes, no yes. more. It's, yeah. no, no, we're done. No. We're done. <laughs> well, let me ask you if there's anything else I've not asked about the book that you, you want to make sure we know about before we wrap up. I, I think you've, you've, you've got it. It's that 
we should understand what a negotiation is about. It's focusing on the pie. Once we understand what the pie is, we can agree to split it. Once we've agreed to split it, we can spend our energy thinking about how to make the pie bigger. Mm. That's not what people do. That's not the natural approach. So you're going to have to convince the other side. Now, I guess the big question that has been answered is, why should they go along with this? Mm-hmm. And the answer is that there's no counterargument, that they can try and be arbitrary and capricious. But here's the thing. We have lots of evidence that people reject deals they see as being unfair. So there's evidence that capuchins, if one capuchin is given grapes and another is given cucumbers for the same task, mm. the one will throw away the cucumbers because they want the grapes. If people are offered an 80-20 split in an ultimatum, $20 is better than zero, but they still turn it down. And we think of a lot of negotiations as zero sum, but actually there's a possibility of no deal, which is zero zero, which is (laughs) a disaster. And so if you can provide somebody with a fair outcome that's legitimately fair, you're not just throwing around the F word with no meaning, (laughs) you're actually making something that's fair, Mm. they're going to accept it. And getting a deal is better than no deal. So my view is that you don't have a counterargument and you've avoided the lose-lose outcome. So yes, you should accept a split the pie and focus on making the pie bigger. One thing that you didn't ask that was on your list was something not to do when negotiating. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, what would you like to add, please? One thing people believe they should do in a negotiation is start off with an extreme position. Sometimes it's called anchoring or softening up the other side. And I think that's a big mistake. Mm. It's a big mistake for a couple reasons. That if you offer me a really low price for my business, for my salary, what does that say about you? What kind of person are you? You're the person who's trying to take advantage of me? Is that the company that I want to work for? Is that the person I want to sell my business to? So essentially, it's one thing to take the behavioral economics literature, which as anchoring has an impact. If you ask me, are the number of African countries in the United Nations above or below 12? And then ask me how many countries there are, uh, African countries in the United Nations. I'm not going to feel insulted by your initial question. But if you start off with a low offer to me, I'm going to take that personally. It's mm-hmm. like, what how, What do I think? And then if I say, by the way, my current salary is 20000 higher than that, or I have other offers and you come right up, now I also dislike you <laughs> because it's like, okay, I'm really convinced that you're trying to take advantage of me. Mm. Moreover, I've also learned that you're super flexible, that you're like jello. And so I'm going to keep on pushing because I think anything you say now doesn't have any meaning. Therefore, my view is that you should make a reasonable first offer, have reasons behind it, just like in the Xerox case, and make it principled. So this idea that we're going to play games Uh, And of course, the worst thing is that one side anchor is really low. The other side anchor is super high. And then they end up thinking they're going to have no deal because they're so far apart from each other. Mm. So let's move away from these games and actually all the more talk about what's the pie and let's think about how we can split it. Mm. Well, as a a professor, I I would imagine going out on a limb here, I would imagine you're well-read. And so I'd love to know over the course of your career, maybe what's a book or two, whether it's about negotiation and that topic or something completely unrelated that you find yourself recommending often to others. I can tell you what I'm uh, reading now, which (laughs) is the Ron Chernow biography of Ulysses S. Grant. Ah, yes. Love his work. Yeah. And 
that helped me understand so much better about the challenges of Reconstruction, of what went wrong uh, after Lincoln, mm. uh, how somebody who was such a failure in every other aspect of his life uh, ended up being a great general. Uh, actually, it has wonderful parallels, I think, to what we see now with Zelensky in Ukraine. Mm. The man was a terrible peacetime leader. He was not a success, but under war, under threat, he is exactly the right person. He is a brilliant communicator, a wonderful strategist. And so seeing how the same person in different positions can have completely different levels of success has been eye-opening. Understanding the taking actions with, with the information that you have mm. uh, and not delaying. So I, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the Chernow biography. Yeah, I've read several of his books. I have not read that one, but I will pick it up now based on, on your recommendation. Love, Ron's work. I'm working on what may potentially be a book called uh, Dream Big, Five Personal Habits That Will Supercharge uh, Your Life. Dream being an acronym, discomfort, reading, energy, advisors, mornings. This will all make sense in a moment. Uh, the D, discomfort, dance with discomfort. This is a habit that I think um, people need to lean into to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and something they need to do regularly. Uh, what, what, what's your take on that topic of just dancing with discomfort, generally speaking? I think you are 100% right about that. Mm. And let's actually do another experiment, if I can, with you. Yeah. So you were, you were a great game before. Let's try it again. <laughs> uh, I have a rule for a pattern of three numbers. Mm. And your job is to guess what the rule is. And you can ask as many examples as you'd like. And I will tell you if that example satisfies the rule or not. In particular, the three numbers two, four, six satisfy the rule. Mm -hmm. And then after each guess, I'll, I'll ask you if you think you know the rule or not. You only get one guess as to the rule, but you can ask as many examples as you'd like. So do you think you know the rule at this point? Um, well, there's something that jumps out as obvious. Uh, whether or not it's the rule, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, well, then you can ask another example or you can guess the rule. You only get one guess as to the rule. Uh, I'll ask for another example. <laughs> Go for it. You, you, you pick the numbers. Oh, yeah, I pick the numbers. Okay, do the numbers 8, 10, and 12 meet the rule? 8, 10, and 12 do meet the rule. Do you now think you know the rule? Yes. Okay, and what is the rule? Uh, all the numbers are even. All the numbers are even. So it turns <laughs> out that's not the rule. And... The reason I ask this example uh, is you should not guess until you've gotten a no. That what you want to be doing is not looking for confirming evidence, mm, but mm. for looking for disconfirming evidence. I right. want you to be uncomfortable. I got overconfident when I got that yes. <laughs> Separate from overconfidence, it's con confirmation versus disconfirmation. Yeah, yeah. If you think it's all even numbers, then what you got to say is 10, 11, 12. Mm, mm, mm. You want to look for the nose. You want to go and prove yourself wrong, not prove yourself right. Mm. And so I'm 100% with you that we are naturally looking to be comfortable. But if we want to learn, what we actually have to do is understand where we would go wrong. What evidence would prove our hypothesis incorrect? Mm. Uh, well, you mentioned uh, the book you're reading 
uh, right now. I, I would imagine some books you read just for how they impact your thinking. But let's assume for the sake of argument, Barry, you're reading a book that's going to create for you a to-do list of things you want to begin implementing after reading it. Mm-hmm. What are some methods maybe you use to synthesize the books you read to increase the likelihood that you'll actually go out and execute on the things you want to execute on? I wish I were better at that. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people do, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I often think about is where else can I apply what I've learned in this book? Mm. And uh, there was a, I've learned something about, I, I'm reading Jing Su's book on the history of the Chinese language. And it turns out that typing Chinese was just a complete disaster <laughs> because it's done in strokes and pictograms rather than letters. And it turns out that actually slowed down scientific progress, slowed down the ability to have the equivalent of printing presses. I mean, it was just, everything was a challenge when you you can't read to learn if you can't read. Mm. And so understanding how people overcame that obstacle. Uh, interestingly, ultimately, the way it's done today is, in effect, people are typing Chinese by typing English. They type the phonetization of the words. Mm. And then actually with AI, they don't even have to type the whole word. They type the first letter. So instead of saying, how are you, they would just say H-A-Y, how A, how H for how, A for R, Y for you. Mm. And the computer is able to fill in everything. Mm. And so just understanding the how AI can be incredibly useful in solving what otherwise looked like intractable problems. Mm. I love that. I'm a big believer, uh, Barry, in that um, managing our energy, uh, not our time necessarily, or not as much is the key to uh, true productivity. Um, Throughout your career, what are some methods maybe you've practiced or maybe seen in others uh, and have leveraged to increase the amount of time spent in areas that give energy and lessening the amount of time in areas spent that that zap energy. Anything come to mind? Sure. I'm going to take a step back, if I may. Mm -hmm. Uh, After I sold Honesty to Coca-Cola, I had the ability to do anything I wanted in my life. Mm. And I'm living in the same house, married to the same woman, doing the same job. But there were a couple things I did do. Mm -hmm. I cleaned up my office. I hired an assistant to help me clean up my office. That actually took two years. My office was a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I hired a personal trainer and I lost 40 pounds. Wow. I got in shape. And what I realized is that the things that I did, I could have afforded to have done even without the sale to Honesty, mm. the sale to Coca-Cola. And the extra energy having from being in shape, from having a regular exercise routine was totally worth it. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of people like to hire athletes because they have extra energy. So mm. devoting time to being physically fit, to having sane sleep routines, having sane eating routines, having sane exercise routines, I think is essential to all of your productivity. And my mistake was waiting too darn long Mm. to focus on that, Uh, that I could have done it much earlier. I should have done it much earlier. And having done it, I I see the benefit. Mm. Uh, the next one, this idea of assembling your advisors, it'd be curious to know how connecting regularly with like-minded people who encourage and challenge you along uh, your your path in life and your career, how has that manifested itself in your life? Has it manifested itself in your life? Do you have this kind of people, these kind of people surrounding you? Uh, that's a, a very fortunate thing about being an academic. Uh, mm-hmm. All of my colleagues are very happy to tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> as are my daughters. Uh, and one of the things early on we did at Honest Tea is we got the most wonderful set of advisors. We had Gary Hirschberg, who was CEO of Stonyfield Farm Yogurt, Tim Tenney, who was a Pepsi bottler, just wonderful people who mm. were able to share their wisdom with us and finding mentors uh, and making that mentorship valuable for them uh, mm. is something I highly encourage you to do and finding mentors in all aspects of your life. So mm. I have a colleague who has put together a board of advisors about the relationships he should have in terms of like, who is the right person for him to date, uh, to marry? Mm. Uh, and uh, that may be taking it to an extreme, but I think that you would be surprised by how willing people are to be advisors if you listen to them, engage with them. You're absolutely right. And that's, of course, I said earlier in terms of jobs, mm. having finding a mentor, finding somebody who can be your advisor is a crucial aspect to having a successful career. Mm. The last one I call master your mornings. How important to you is a consistent morning ritual? This is something I used to not practice at all. I would get up just enough time to, to get ready and go to work. And I wouldn't pour into me first before trying to go out and change the world. How do you view that, uh, a morning ritual, maybe with regard to things like your body, your heart, your mind, spirit, et cetera? So I did have this morning routine with my trainer that I eventually gave up uh, mm -hmm. and found they were better. I, I'm not a morning person. I, I guess uh, if I had to write your book, it'd be Drie, <laughs> master, master your evenings, master your night, dream. Uh, so... My view is I want to go to bed sort of not worrying about stuff. I want to clean my slate at the end of the day. Uh, I want to respond to the emails. I want to be prepared for my classes the next day. And I'm having sort of an hour at night where people aren't sending me emails. I, I'm not falling behind. And just the quiet of that mm. time is what I uh, totally relish. Mm. And then making sure I have enough sleep so that uh, whatever faces me in the morning, uh, I'm ready for but I'm not starting at minus one. Uh, it's actually why I started a company, by the way. Uh, it's called uh, Real Made Foods. It's overnight oats. And essentially, you make your breakfast the night before. So you, we pre-mix the oatmeal for you with mulberries, with chia, with bananas. Uh, you add your milk. And so that you can go to bed happy knowing that you have a great breakfast waiting for you the next day. I love it. So I guess the way I master my mornings is I master my evening. <laughs> I love that. I, lo and I love that you created a product that, that sort of uh, lends itself to practicing uh, managing uh, your evenings or mastering your evenings. Love it. Love now, it. Love it. Now, my colleagues <laughs> think the reason I did this is so I could be a serial entrepreneur with the C. <laughs> but I'm bumped. <laughs> I love it. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I learned so much uh, from this book about what I used to view as a rather dry topic, but your book is not, I mean, dry is not the word I would use to describe this. Fun to read is, is a phrase I would use to describe it. And I learned a lot. So thank you for that. The book again is called Split the Pie, A Radical New Way to Negotiate. His name is Barry Nailbuff. Barry, thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed having you. It's my privilege. Let's make a big pie. You helped do that today. And so let's keep on doing it. As I said earlier, I've not found particularly books on negotiation to be in my wheelhouse, but this book for me was a difference maker. I really enjoyed reading and learning about negotiation from Barry, and I think you will too. 
find links to the book and the other resources and links we talked about at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 425 for episode 425. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 425. And if you missed joining my first note-taking mastery cohort, which kicks off any day now, I encourage you to get on the waiting list for the next one. The way to do that is go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. And I'll make sure that you're on the notifications list the next time we open another note-taking mastery cohort, which is set to be in the early fall. One more time, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. Well, June is looking great for Read to Lead podcast guests. We've got John David Mann, co-author of The Go-Giver, and his wife, Anna Gabriel Mann. They've co-written a book called The Go-Giver Marriage. We'll be chatting with them in a few weeks. Also, Bob Lodick. And next week, author Roger Martin makes a return visit to the podcast. All that and more on the way right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that does it for this week. I hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.